AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, go ask Alice when she's 10 feet tall. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkabaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. I was rather surprised by that one, Jonathan. Well, you know who that's by, right? Of course, Jefferson Airship. No, it's Airplane. It's from their 1967 album. Fun fact, y'all. I have seen Starship in concert. Yeah? Wow. Wow. At the Riverbend Festival in Chattanooga, which likes to bring lots of bands that used to be rather big. <laughs> that used to be good? <laughs> oh. I don't know if I'd say Starship used to be good. I don't know. I guess well, Starship you, used to be Jefferson, Jefferson Airplane, Airplane, which, which was used good. to be good, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this episode is not about Jefferson Airplane, but we will be talking about airplanes quite a bit. Sure. We wanted to talk about a sort of different way of addressing the the how can we live a healthier future question today. Right. So on this podcast, we talk about all kinds of uh, vaccines, medical treatments, weird new surgeries, bug venoms you can take to cure your diseases. But one thing we haven't talked about much is environmental engineering. Right. For 
better health. Yeah, trying to make a space that a lot of people are sharing for any given amount of time as pathogen-free as possible. Uh, right, because we cannot all be hermits as often as we want to. Sure. <laughs> I mean, we feel the the stress of this sometimes, working in an open office as we do. Sure. There are perhaps not as many walls, dividers, barriers, and so forth as we might like. We, we, have, so, a, we have a very uh, proactive manager who is is uh, keen to send people home should they exhibit any signs or symptoms of illness. Uh, sadly, she is not in our Atlanta office anymore. <laughs> so I worry about what flu season is going to be like next year. Oh, man, there was a while back I was uh, I had a cough and I felt so bad being in the office, but I had stuff I had to do. Uh, I, I everybody's looking at me and I was like, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. And on top of that, we're, we're going to talk about environments like airplanes or uh, even trains, things, things where you've got a lot of people in an enclosed space. And what can you do or what can be done to make those, uh, you know, cleaner, safer for people, less likely to spread a disease should someone who is infected with something get on that, that or get in that enclosure. Uh, sure, because it's not just common sense that these, you know, tubes of mass transit are going to probably have some some bugs flying around in them. <laughs> yeah. Um. Th- there is plenty of actual evidence of this. Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, back in two thousand two. Now, the numbers vary. I've seen as low as 16 and as high as 22, but around 20 or so people aboard an international flight were infected by a single passenger who had SARS. And that's that's a serious issue there. In fact, it's in the name. It's a very dangerous uh, condition to to a disease to contract. And I think ultimately 16 people also came down with SARS, but there were as high as 22 were infected in some way. And a lot of people pointed to that to say, here's a way how uh, where air travel can end up being a a vector for a disease to spread very rapidly. Because then you you expand that, not just to the people who are on board the flight, but then the folks they come into contact with after the flight is over. And this also becomes a starting point for every zombie outbreak movie you have ever seen or zombie oh, novel you've ever read. Sure, yeah. A long overseas flight is almost like a sort of uh, like culture dish yeah, <laughs> yeah. for humans. Well, and, and you hear about things like recycled air. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, you know, it sounds like you're se- seated next to people for most of the flight. You aren't really able to move around. You can't really separate yourself from everybody else. So it's it's a prime candidate for uh, a disease to spread from person to person. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But in order to understand all of this, we really need to kind of lay a foundation. So we usually do that on this show. We like to start from the ground and work our way up. Uh, so I thought it'd be important for us to actually talk about what pathogens are. Sure. So this is going to mean that we're limiting the discussion today to communicable diseases, yeah. not diseases like not how to engineer environments to prevent you from getting back pain or something. Right, right. This right. To, uh, this to, is to, to stop the spread of bacteria and viruses, right, germs. Right. So uh, pathogens, it, most of the pathogens will be talking about in this episode fall into one of two categories. They, they are biological agents that cause disease or illness uh, to a host. Uh, usually we talk about multicellular organisms being the host, although there are unicellular 
pathogens as well, or uh, pathogens that can affect unicellular organisms. That is, but we're not unicellular, so we're not really concerned about that right. in this episode. You no. don't care if the bacteria on your skin get sick. Yeah, I mean, you might Heartless. you might need to, <laughs> depending upon what the bacteria are supposed to do. But at any rate, um, the the two types we're really going to be talking about are bacteria and viruses, and so we need to explain the difference between those. And the differences are, are many. Between the two, although we often, if you know, if you're not, if you're not keen on your science, like you haven't really studied biology very much, you know, it's it's easy to mix up the two, you know, or get confused over which which ones are treated by antibiotics versus vaccinations, that kind of thing. Uh, right, especially because in a lot of the common types of diseases that they cause, the symptoms tend to be really similar. Right. Yeah. The symptoms for diseases that are caused by bacterial infection or a viral infection can be very similar. And so they can be a little confusing. Which are the ones that cause the zombie outbreaks? It's typically a virus, but, you know, it's... Well, and these are modern times. I mean, there's a lot more fear of viruses, I think. So therefore... Also random radiation that can also cause zombies. And I, I guess you could say that viruses are sort of zombies themselves, both living and not. Yeah, yeah. So let's start with bacteria. Bacteria are single-celled microorganisms. Uh, They're prokaryotes, uh, meaning that they lack a membrane, any membrane-bound organelles, including the nucleus. They don't have a nucleus. They are small. just a little soup of stuff inside of Yeah, a little soup pill, kind of. Mm, Um, Soup pill. Soup pill. Mm. They're, They're usually only a few micrometers in length. They tend to affect the body in a localized infection as opposed to a systemic infection. So, like, if you get a wound that gets infected, that's typically going to be a bacteria infection right. rather than a viral infection. Right. And and now that can in, uh, end up developing into a blood infection, which can spread through the rest of your body. And that's very dangerous, obviously. In fact, infection is one of those big dangers of, of wounds is that if, if you don't bleed out, the next big danger is infection. Um, they're typically treated with antibiotics. So antibiotics kill bacteria. Uh, they can sometimes kill both good and bad bacteria. We've talked about how our bodies are veritable bacteria cities, metropolises. Oh, yeah, yeah. They uh, outnumber our own human cells 10 to 1 within our bodies. So, uh, And not all the bacteria that's in our bodies is actually harmful. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lots of it is either harmless or or helpful. Yeah. And uh, in fact, there was a really interesting study about hospitals that looked at different types of bacteria, some of which were incredibly helpful. I'll mention that a little bit later in the episode as well. Uh, bacteria can survive and thrive even on non-living surfaces. In other words, you could end up having a batch of bacteria sitting on all sorts of stuff and you could end up you know, coming into contact with that and getting bacteria on you as a result. That's uh, one of the things that makes... Bacteria, pretty tricky stuff because it's not like it's it's not like it'll immediately die outside of the body. It doesn't. It's it can survive. It can hang out in especially moisture. Anything that has water on it or in it can house bacteria. A lot of them can even multiply in that Mm -hmm. in that case, not just uh, out inside a body. Uh, When they infect another organism, they survive between cells. In other words, they aren't inhabiting cells. They're surviving with, you know, between all the different cells. So they are intercellular. Uh, then we have viruses, which are small protein structures that contain either DNA or RNA. Uh, whether they are a form of life or not is a matter of debate. 
because they exhibit some aspects that we associate with living things and they lack other things. So they do replicate, but they replicate by infecting a host cell. Uh, typically, it's a specific type of host cell for that mm-hmm. particular vi- virus. They tend to have these old protein markers that have them seek out specific types of cells. And latch on and then inject a bunch of their DNA or RNA, whichever right. the case may be, mm-hmm. into that host cell. And they turn the host cell into a virus-making machine until the host cell is essentially consumed from within and bursts. And the, With all the new little viral bits. Yeah, and they all go launching off looking for other cells and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so that's horrifying. Yeah, pretty nasty stuff. <laughs> uh, they require a living host to multiply. They don't multiply outside of a host because they need that cell to infect. They, they cannot replicate on their own. Uh, they are intracellular because they infiltrate cells. Now, they are much smaller than bacteria. I said bacteria tend to be a few micrometers in size. Uh, viruses tend to be between 20 and 400 nanometers in size. 1,000 nanometers uh, is one micrometer. So they are much smaller than bacteria are. Uh, and a viral infection is systemic rather than localized. It can be treated with antiviral medications, but this typically slows down the virus's replication. It doesn't necessarily stop it. It gives your body's immune system enough time to deal with the virus itself. Uh you can also get vaccinated. Vaccinations typically involve inje- an injection of a dead virus of whatever type you are uh, immune- immunizing yourself against. And then you have an immunity to that particular strain of the virus. Not necessarily all strains of that virus. Uh, right, right. But it, it lets your body recognize that certain type of virus and uh, fight it off in the future. Right. Just say, no way, mister, mm-hmm. and and turn it away. So, uh, yeah, that, those are the major differences between the bacteria and the viruses. Uh, you know, you mentioned, Joe, that uh, that wounds are... Really, you know, if you have an infection with a wound, it tends to be a bacterial infection, which is absolutely true. A virus can enter through a wound. Oh, sure. Uh, your, your skin is really your body's very best defense against viruses and bacteria and other pathogens as well. Your, your skin is designed to be this terrific uh, wall, like like a giant fortress wall against yeah. that kind of stuff. But uh, but these things can get in either through cuts in your skin or through your mucous membranes right. uh, around your eyes, your nose, your mouth, etc. And then, of course, there are plenty of other types of parasites that can get at you, such as malaria, neither a virus nor a bacteria. Sure. There, there's also uh, fungi, there are toxins that are also pathogens. So there are other types, but the two we're mainly concerned with are viruses and bacteria. Those are the two that tend to be passed from a person who is infected to a person who is not. Uh, and so we wanted to specifically focus on that. And also, in order to talk about how to make places, especially things like airplanes and trains, that sort of stuff, safe, we have to look at how are these these various pathogens passed from infected to healthy. Sure. So ever since the early 16th century, we've known that Diseases are mostly spread by evil night vapors. Mm-hmm. When you check your humors to see if they are in balance and you notice there's an imbalance of humors, you know you had a case of <clears> the vapors. You know, we do <laughs> still have kind of a – well, a, another popular theory, of course, used to be the miasma theory. Right. You know, that it was like there was something in the air and well, we Well, yeah, know you would have a foul smell. You would associate the foul smell with some sort of disease – and then, therefore, the smell was what was causing the disease. Right. And 
we know that's not true scientifically now, but it does still sort of have a very strong intuitive appeal, like the idea that there's just sort of like some bad air around somewhere, and it's like, I don't want to be near that. Yeah, yeah. And well, it's it's not entirely inaccurate, technically, because some bacteria and viruses can spread through the air. That's true. Sure, you can have airborne contact yep. uh, to contract a virus or bacteria, like a thing that can be expelled in droplets when somebody coughs or sneezes. Yeah, sneeze, or even just breathes, honestly. Right, yeah. Sneezing in particular is pretty nasty because it's like a bazooka blast of uh, pathogens from someone who is who is actually infected with some form of, of illness, whether it's the flu or the common cold or something similar. Uh, and they expel droplets containing the pathogen, which if you come into contact with them, if you breathe them in or you otherwise are touching surfaces, if it's a bacteria and you're touching surfaces that have been affected by this and then touching your eyes or anything like or you eat or, you or eat, anything right? like that, mm-hmm. you could be introducing that same pathogen into your body. Uh, there's also some that can be passed through direct contact. So that's like your your scary doorknob. Yep. Yeah, that would be more like that. Or or even say you you get on the plane, everyone on your plane, everybody, every single other person that is getting on the plane, perfectly healthy. Not a problem. Person who got on the flight before you, very sick, sat in the same seat you were in. Direct contact with that seat that they have had contact with. They were on a very long flight. You could potentially pick something up that way. Uh, planes generally are disinfected yes. in between... In, in in between flights. Yeah, so. sure yes. they are. <laughs> well, that's why that's one of the reasons why when uh, a plane has been deplaned, everyone has left. There's still a a at least a half hour, usually a half hour or more, between then and when the people are allowed to board the plane because the plane actually does have to be serviced, and by that it means lots of stuff, including disinfecting surfaces. Those loose potato chips that you find in your airplane seat are a gift to you from the airplane <laughs> gnomes, and you should definitely eat them. Okay, what about the types of diseases you get from kissing people, like mono? <laughs> okay, that's oral transmission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You can have oral transmission. Uh, or just spitting method. in each other's mouths. That would, so. again, be oral transmission. <laughs> this, also known as the smoochie smoochy sickness. Uh-huh. Um, that That's one method. Uh, there are a lot of other ways of getting very sick through oral transmission, including very unpleasant ones, the uh, oral fecal transmissions. Yes. Sure. Not, not pleasant to think about. It does happen not as frequently in developed nations as in other places where sanitation is not as as uh, strong. Well, that was a, and water supply issues. Y- yes, that was a common way that polio was spread, right? Oh wow! Yeah, right. it was through people like swimming in water where there was a fecal to oral transmission route. Mm. Hmm. So it's it's definitely one of those things that can happen. It's less likely to happen, uh, but it can. I mean, depending again on the hygiene of the people who are also around you. So there are a lot of th- these means of transmitting diseases, but these are the main ones we would focus on for public spaces. Obviously. There are other methods. I mean, there's sexually transmitted diseases, but we're talking about airplanes and trains. So for the large portion of the people actually using these, that's not going to be a factor. Don't could, put your genitals on the public transportation Please seats. don't. Just don't. I, I've seen it happen. <laughs> so speaking of all these different means of transmission, the ones that we're specifically looking at, oral and airborne and direct contact, that tells you, all right, well, here are the, the main ways 
that a disease can be transmitted. Airborne's probably the 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 actually the one that's most frequent in at least in the case of a lot of people in an enclosed space. So with that in mind, uh, how can we perhaps design environments to better protect against that sort of thing? Yeah, because it seems like if we know what the vectors are, like if you know the routes that these diseases are trying to exploit in order to infect new people, you should be able to put up barriers to those vectors, right? Yeah. Sure. I mean, you you at least can take it into account and say what sort of design elements can we put in place that are best going to protect people while not negatively impacting their experience. While you know you don't want to have little isolation tubes descend and and surround each person. Oh, actually, I totally want that. <laughs> There's no space on an airplane already. You want it to be further confined with an isolation tube? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Just pump the air full of well, Prozac. To be fair, or however, Lauren, that Lauren works. you don't need as much legroom as <laughs> some of the rest of us. <laughs> okay, so. accurate. All right. uh, well, in general, what we're talking about is sort of mechanical mechanical methods of protection from disease. An analogy would be if you're talking about malaria, one way that people have found is very effective in treating malaria rather than, you know, medications and things is just mosquito nets. Right. Prevent yes. the oh, prevention. Yeah. Just right? having a barrier in place that prevents the infection vector from getting to you. Yeah. So one thing we can do and and people actually uh, will do is look at hospitals and say, what are the most effective means of preventing transmission of disease in a hospital environment? Because as you would imagine, hospitals, clearly there two big things come along with it. One, you've got a lot of sick people there. So there's a lot of opportunity for disease to yeah. pass from one person to the next. That is where the sick people go. Yeah. And the other one is that you've got people who are in very delicate states. They may have uh, compromised immune system. So you have to be very good about preventing that from happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You also have a high traffic population of mm -hmm. lots of people coming and going, lots of uh, nursing staff changing over, et cetera, right. et cetera. Same yeah. problem as an airplane, basically. Sure. Right. Yeah. And you've got, you've got uh, various staff visiting multiple patients. So that means there's another potential means of, of transferring a disease from one person to another, whether it's from one patient to another or a patient to a member of staff or whatever it might be. So there are a lot of things that we can learn by looking at effective uh, um, methods and policies in hospitals. And uh, I actually saw a really cool video and read up on a project that I thought was pretty interesting. It's called the Hospital Microbiome Project. And they look at hospitals as ecosystems. They almost think of it as a living, breathing entity. Because it has its own, they think of the, the. So uh, who are the apex predators at the hospital? <laughs> that would, that would probably be insurance companies, but <laughs> at any rate, uh, at any rate, the, uh, so the, the hospitals, their, their respiratory system would be the, the, like the HVAC system, right? The air filtration system. Sure. That would be part of it. And they talk about how, it's a very complex system. You've got different air pressures built up in different rooms, right? Uh, not all the rooms have doors that are open. So there's actually differences in air pressure, which means that directs the flow of air, whether it's coming into the room or out of the room. Uh, the filtration system has to have a really good air filter in order to catch as many pathogens as possible to prevent them from spreading throughout the facility. Um, you know, it's it's a complex system. They started looking at all sorts of different factors to try and determine which ones are uh, most important, which ones correlate with the spreading of pathogens. So, for example, they started looking at things like a patient's the, – the temperature of a patient's room. Now, patients generally have control over that 
for their comfort, right? They can set the thermostat to higher or lower. And so they wanted to make sure that the room temperature was not going to be correlated with the spread of pathogens because if it is, then maybe you have to take the control away from the patients. Mm-hmm. Right. They found that there was no real correlation between room temperature and the spread of pathogens. But they did find that – and this is no surprise because of what Lauren had said earlier – humidity is a factor. Ah, yes. If you've got more water droplets in the air, then you have a better chance of stuff like bacteria transmitting through them. Yeah. So humidity control could actually be an effective means of limiting pathogens spreading in a hospital. So it's one of those things that the project recommends is – Installing equipment that would allow for the control of humidity to limit that kind of of spread. So that was really interesting. Uh, And they looked at lots of other things, too. They included uh, RFID tags with staff so that they could track who goes where. They had uh, different biosensors to really look at all sorts of of criteria to, to kind of judge what is important. And they even went so far as to... uh Measure the, the bacteria in the hospital before it opened. They, they used a hospital in Chicago that had not yet opened. So they were evaluating the hospital before any patients were in it. And they took a sample of the various bacterial cultures that were inside the hospital before it even opened. Then they started measuring the new bacteria that came in once patients were uh, admitted to the hospital. And they have a real-time kind of graph that shows the different populations and how closely related they are. And they realized that the bacterial uh, populations that were already in the hospital, one, were not harmful. They, they weren't pathogens. Mm-hmm. And two, were limiting the spread of pathogen bacteria. Mm. So they were almost huh. acting like bodyguards in a way. And so they said, this is really interesting stuff. It may tell us more about the kinds of bacteria we might want to intentionally cultivate cultivate yeah. in hospitals to help prevent the spread of pathogens. Because, again, bacteria is not a blanket term for bad stuff. And I found it really interesting. So I'm hoping to be able to look into more about this particular project because – it seemed like such a cool way of addressing the thing, the the issue, and also could potentially apply to other environments. Now, I'm not saying that you know, we're going to be introducing tons of cultures of, of different types of bacteria inside of aircraft. Maybe we will, but um, hey, we've got an open office floor plan here. We can, <laughs> and, and we and we all use this tiny little podcast studio. I think that we would be really just the perfect population. Yeah, you know what I think we should do that some hospitals do now is that uh, ultraviolet sanitization procedure, where when people leave a room, they blast it with UV radiation to just kill it all. Yeah, just, just give you a nice base orbit. time, base tan, and and nuke it from orbit. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, granted, the the folks at the microbiome project would say, yeah, you don't really want to kill the bad along no, with the kill, good. Kill them all. All right. <laughs> well, let, let the bacterial gods sort them out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, that probably was hasty. Yeah, yeah. You, we should. I, I mean, I wonder to what extent you can trust good bacteria to remain good. Like, if you know that they're not generally pathogenic and attacking mm-hmm. humans, are there certain scenarios where they might? Would they become opportunistic if somebody has a weakened immune system or something like that? I would imagine that it, 
I mean, I, I am not a microbiologist, so I should <laughs> should pre- I should preface everything I say all the just, time. With just that. a question for thought. I should just be like, I'm not a microbiologist, but, but. I really like the color blue. <laughs> Uh, no, but, uh, I'm not a microbiologist. But this pizza is delicious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm not a microbiologist, but I would imagine it's sort of like saying, uh, you know, I know there's no record of a gerbil attacking and eating a fully grown man, but if the opportunity arose, <laughs> would a gerbil do that? Because, you know, some The answer mic- is yes. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, I'll move on. So. <laughs> Uh, one, one thing that we could actually do yeah. in this, our open office environment is install HEPA filters. Yeah. These yeah. are really, really awesome. I mean, the, these are the, uh, the, the types of air filtration systems meant to eliminate or, well, really capture, uh, the vast majority of pathogens that could pass through that system, now especially that, the airborne ones. That's kind of hard to imagine because when I think of air filtration, I think of stuff like the uh, filtration rectangle that I shove into the furnace under my house to filter our heating and air. And the, yeah. I mean, there it looks basically like it's going to catch some hair and dust, but... Well, basically but, it is. <laughs> that one is. But it... Anything very small could get through it. Yeah. So we're obviously talking about a totally different level of filtration here. Is something that's able to catch stuff that's on the micrometer level. Yeah. Uh, HEPA stands for High Efficiency Particulate Arrestance Filter. Particulate Arrested Squad. Yeah. Sorry. I it's, that. Okay, there's a whole yeah. series of cops that's okay. just based on that. So, uh, yeah, it's they're designed to capture particles that are 0.3 micrometers in size or larger. So anything below that would potentially pass straight through the filter. So remember, we mentioned viruses can be between 20 and 400 nanometers. So anything that's 300 nanometers or larger, the filter could catch. But anything smaller but than those that... those itty-bitty viruses are Yeah, they could potentially right pass through. through. Uh, however, if you're looking at just the sheer number of pathogens, this would catch a lot of them, like 90... Oh, yeah. Like around 90 upper 90 percentile for the uh, pathogens of 0.3 micrometers in size or larger. And um, the thing to remember is that while they catch the pathogens, they don't kill them, right? So if you have airborne bacteria and you've got one of these filtration systems and the bacteria gets sucked up into the filtration systems and they hit that filter so that they cannot be recycled back into the environment – they may be stuck on that filter, but they'll still be alive. Mm-hmm. Nuke it for morbid. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so so don't lick your HEPA filter. No, and, uh, do not do that. <laughs> and when you are disposing of it, be very careful. Uh, if you happen to be the person who is doing this, yes. I, you know, get some training and make sure you don't shake it out over a. a immune compromised patients. <laughs> right, right. You just go to the waste basket and you're. You're pounding it against your hand, kind of like the the like the a carpet, lo- yeah. or or like the filter in in a dryer. You know, where oh, you take it yeah. out and after a yeah. load of laundry, and you're like no. trying to get all the the lint out. Don't do that. That would be that would, that would be foolish. That would be bad. Yeah. So, but they are incredibly effective, and oh, in yeah. fact, in fact, these are very similar to filters that are already in aircraft. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, there are a lot of aircraft that I mean. Really, essentially all aircraft that are currently in use have a filtration system that are, is similar to, if not identical to, the yeah, HEPA filter m- many system. of them do use HEPA filters. So let's talk about how we can take what we've talked about plus some other ideas to make 
things like planes and trains safer from a contagion standpoint. Uh, and a big part of it is looking at ways of using airflow to help protect people from pathogens. Uh, right, because we've got these filters in these planes, but uh, it takes a minute for air to circulate through a cabin and get mm. back to one of these filters. Yeah, so that air is going to continue to be there inside the cabin until it gets pulled through the filtration system. And while it's there, you know, you, you have plenty of opportunity to encounter all sorts of pathogens. Now, I should also add that you know, we started off talking about the SARS story, but that is really the exception, not the rule. It was an exceptional case. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of experts who say that really when you look at it from uh, a broad study, people don't tend to pass disease along or catch a disease while traveling. It can happen, and it is an opportune place for it to happen, but it doesn't happen so frequently that it's like an epidemic or anything. All that being said... Uh, one of the things you can actually do, you act, you can take action and make your plane ride uh, safer, according mm-hmm. to experts, is you can turn on the air vent and aim it so it's hitting your lap. So it's blowing down on you, hitting your lap, and it acts as kind of an air force field. And so if someone else sneezes or coughs, uh, that downward air is going to help protect you from any airborne bacteria that would otherwise get into your breathing space. So that's a DIY approach mm-hmm. of of trying to make your trip a little less germ infested. Little bonus fact, you can use a similar method to protect yourself from mosquitoes. Have you ever tried this? No. Yeah, apparently I've read about this. If you set up a an oscillating fan uh-huh. and sit in the breeze of the fan, mosquitoes aren't going to get to you. Oh. Yeah, that makes it's sense. definitely I mean, they just, more they difficult. Can't, yeah, they're they're weak. They got these weak little wings. Oh, I can't do it. They can't. <laughs> I I like the fact that they are they are upset about it too. Yeah. It's like not just that they can't, but that uh, what's your blood? <laughs> I can't. Yeah, totally picturing Luke Skywalker from from Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> right. Oddly oh. enough, the same thing is true about Gary Oldman. I woke up and he could not get to me because <laughs> I had an oscillating fan set up. Well, you better be careful to avoid fan death, though. Yeah, I, I will be careful about that. Let's talk about also another little side note about what you can do if you're on a if you're going on an airplane trip and you want to, you know, you're concerned about about the possibility of encountering. Uh, pathogens, particularly if it's something like during flu season, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of using the vent set to like lower medium to blow straight down onto your lap, you might also consider carrying some hand sanitization gel. I've seen recommendations of uh, sanitization gel that has like sanitizer that has like 60% alcohol content in it. Question. Yeah. I've actually heard it is not such a great idea to use hand sanitizer. Well, not necessarily all the time, because if you're doing it all the time, then you could be helping contribute to uh, superbugs. But for something where you are in an environment where you are concerned about the cleanliness of that environment, let's say that someone is coughing and you want to eat your airplane food, but you're worried that maybe your hands have come into contact with pathogens – you would want to clean your hands. And another to- on top of that, another issue is that if you go into the washroom to wash your hands, the water on airplanes is not always clean. In hmm. fact, I have seen experts suggest that if you wish to brush your teeth on an international flight, you may want to consider using bottled water because huh. the fecal content in airplane water in some studies has proven to be higher than what you would like it want. to be. Okay. <laughs> 
we're doing Which it. would probably it's be higher than zero. Zero level, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we all accept some level of feces in our water, but w- what is unacceptable? Uh, the amount that would make you sick is, is my answer to that, but I don't know what that specific I think amount palpable is. Palpable. <laughs> that would that's definitely be unacceptable when you can see it. <laughs> that's right out. Um, that's right out. Uh, but but about about hand sanitizer yes. and and hand washing, uh, both actually. Uh, yeah, you, you just want to make sure that you're not overdoing it, especially right. if you're I mean, you know, I'd say that the more important thing is to not touch surfaces and then touch your mucous membranes immediately afterwards. Uh, but but if you do choose to use a sanitizer to wash your hands before you, for example, eat a meal, then j- just watch out for skin dryness, because all of that washing and sanitization can make your skin dry out and, and crack, which then introduces a new vector through which microbes can get into your body that you otherwise would have been protected from. So if you are going to do that kind of thing, uh, maybe just carry a little bottle of moisturizer to use after you do the washing and or sanitizing. That's starting to – that little one-quart bag is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, <laughs> it makes me wonder if Thing from Fantastic Four gets sick a lot. Oh, man. Poor dude. He probably does. Whereas I wonder if Thing from the Adams Family gets sick a lot. I mean, he touches everything with his hand. He does. That's all he is. But he doesn't really have a respiratory system. That's so. true. So maybe he's okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, next we, we wanted to mention also we talked about how the air filtration system is very similar to the hospital ones, including some uh, aircraft that actually do use HEPA filters specifically. Uh, a lot of the air in uh, an airplane cabin is recycled, not all of it. And it does go through this filtration system. So the the air going through the filtration, you know, people talk about how, oh, you're breathing recycled air. That's what's making you sick. Actually, no. Breathing the recycled air is great because it's fine. It's, uh, it's, it's, all those pathogens are being caught by the filtration system. It's, it's before it got recycled. Pre-recycled. That's <laughs> bad. Yeah. Um, according to the Airport Cooperative Research Program, which is an FAA-sponsored consortium of airline and airport councils here in the United States, a- air in flights is generally a 50-50 mix of recycled air and air that is pulled in from outside of the airplane, uh, which certainly when you get to cruising altitude is fine. Nothing's really living in that air at that point point. Um, it, it is filtered before they put it directly into your plane. So if you're concerned about chemtrails, which you shouldn't be, no. uh, then then, you know, that's taken care of. Um, and and that air is uh, supposed to be exchanged some 10 to 15 times per hour mm-hmm. while you're on a flight. So so that's nice. Yeah, that's actually a that's good, a good system. So if we move, but I'm sure the water is also not supposed to have fecal matter. In it. <laughs> yes. Well, and I should I should add that this is not something that's that's found across all aircraft, across all airlines, okay. all the time. It was just there was a study done in which uh, out of I think there was something like 130 airplanes where they tested the water, and something like 20 of them came back with that's okay. a significant number, right? So uh, yeah, that's more than zero. Yeah. So, so. It's, it's just one of those things where again, you know, if you're aware of it then you can take precautions against it. I mean, this is particularly important if you are someone who, let's say that you know that your your immune system has been compromised in some way. It's important for you to know. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, but let's, let's look at some ways that are being done, you know, stuff that's outside of the filtration systems and the DIY methods, some proposals that could also help uh, protect people. So there was a, this was what was actually inspired this podcast in the first place. This story we're going to talk about, which is that a high school student named Raymond Wong won first place at the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair in Pittsburgh on May 15th, 2015. 
And he was specifically looking at using airflow, kind of like what we were talking about with the vents, um, to design aircraft cabins where the airflow itself would protect passengers from the spread of pathogens, airborne pathogens, which is pretty cool. And uh, he did this by running various computer simulations. And uh, he did, I think, 32 different computer simulations showing what would happen in a sneeze with different types of airflow. And the animations are pretty interesting. He used a dark blue color to represent the spread of the sneeze. And so you watch the different uh, computer simulations like, whoa, that would make it way worse. <laughs> or, or this would essentially mean you're just sneezing on yourself. Like that's kind of how it turned out. But it was interesting to see the different simulations. And he won first place and $75,000. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now – while this was a cool idea and while he was awarded first place, there are those who have pointed out that perhaps it's not uh, as grand an idea as you might first consider. Wong himself had said that the um, the design would end up increasing fresh air availability in the cabin by 190 percent and that would cut down on pathogens more than 50 percent. So it was really pretty impressive. But um, some experts have said, you know, it may be that it prevents the immediate spread of the pathogens through the air, but you still have the droplets to contend with. And some of those are going to be traveling at least around the immediate area and that you would, you could still encounter those pathogens. It's just that, you know, if you're like three rows ahead, you might not be, but if you're next to the person, you, you probably would still be uh, exposed to them. Uh, so it's just a good idea to, you know, keep that hand washing and moisturization combo in mind just in case so but it was it was neat to see a student come up with a clever means of potentially protecting people whether this ever gets built into actual aircraft as part of the design is another matter entirely it may never be incorporated directly there although it is very similar to that method we talked about about turning the vent on and having it pointing down at you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sure uh, what about other practical ways that we could re-engineer our airplane environments? Well, one thing would be addressing a different vector because right now we're talking about the airborne vector of sure. disease spread, which is very common and probably the main thing we should worry about. But what about uh, contagion by contact? Right. Now, on aircraft, again, assuming that they're doing the, the you know, the clean walkthrough between flights – you shouldn't have to worry too much about that in the first place. But there's a way you could add to that that security. Plus, if you're talking about something like a train where they obviously are not going to walk through and clean every surface between every stop. They can't and they won't. Certainly not on MARTA here no, in Atlanta. No, no, not on MARTA. So well, probably not on any public transportation. Probably I mean, they, not. I mean, there's just no There's no practical way to do the, it. Yeah. Yeah. Even if, even if the demand were there, there's no practical way of, of performing that. So one thing that could be done is that you could start using materials that are antimicrobial in the actual upholstery of any sort of cushions you might use. Now, granted, Marta... It's all hard plastic. There are very few trains. There might be one or two that still have the cushiony chairs, but they are very, not terribly cushiony. They're mostly vinyl and no padding. So <laughs> uh, anyway, but if you were to use sort of a cotton upholstery, you could have a silver nanoparticle infused cotton. Silver has antimicrobial uh, uh, effects. It, Somehow that sounds expensive. 
Well, here's the thing. We're talking nanoparticles, right? So you don't need a lot of silver <laughs> to turn it into a bunch okay. of nanoparticles. Though I'd imagine almost any kind of nanoparticles are probably kind of expensive. To no, a little bit. Yeah. But the nice thing is but we actually do use silver right now in things like um, like uh, uh, bandages. There are bandages that have silver nanoparticles in hmm. them because of that antimicrobial effect. Huh. Yeah. They're, it's incredibly effective. It is – uh, usually you're looking actually at an ion of silver and it ends up uh, disrupting the bacterial cells and killing them. So it's very effective in that. Uh, so imagine that you had this stuff used to upholster a seat, then that antimicrobial uh, effect would mean that any bacteria that landed on that, at least any bacteria that are um, vulnerable to silver, would not be viable for very long. They would, they would, they would die. Now there are some types of bacteria that are resistant. They don't, they aren't affected by silver in that way. But uh, again, you're looking at the best way to eliminate or uh, at least decrease the number of pathogens to, you know, increase the chances that no one on board is going to get a disease. Now this might actually be the answer to a question that we asked in the podcast about the future of fashion, about whether people are ever going to just be naked all the time. Mm. And of course, the problem was it's you know, not really sanitary. Yeah, yeah, that's that was the conclusion. But yeah, yeah if if you just made everything that people might publicly sit on or whatever <laughs> out of all the silver stuff, there you go. Well, yeah. I mean, it'll kill the bacteria, but you know, it'd still be gross. Yeah, it'd still be pretty <laughs> gross. Like. <laughs> I'm thinking about the heat wave we're currently experiencing in Atlanta mm. and how much I personally am sweating. <laughs> and I don't want to subject anybody else to that. <laughs> and I know they don't want me to do it <laughs> because they've told me. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, to, to, to talk about the silver nanoparticles, I mean, they've actually proven that a, a, some cotton that has been infused with silver nanoparticles and cured. It, it's not just that you dip it in the stuff. You have to actually treat it. Yeah. Um, can uh, reduce the cell counts of certain types of bacteria like E. coli. In fact, it can reduce it by 91 percent. Wow. That, that is really significant. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So are we going to see silver cotton doorknobs in the future and silver cotton handrails? I hope Un- so. That sounds delightful. Unlikely, though. I mean, you could technically work in the silver nanoparticles into other things besides cotton. That's just what they've used in the experiment. So all of this, you know, as kind of scary as it can sound, it's not by any means meant to to scare you guys. No, no. Really, we were wanting to look at what are the potential ways that we could limit pathogens from spreading. But to be honest, they don't spread that quickly in aircraft, at least not according to a study that was performed in 2009 by the European Center for Disease Control. They were looking at uh, disease transmission. I think they were looking at a list of 12 different diseases. And they looked across uh, a broad range of flights and found that the rate of onboard transmission of diseases was really pretty low. Uh, like it's not a frequent occurrence. So it's not something that is, again, like anywhere close to an epidemic level. It's just one of those things like how can we make it better? It's not that it's a broken system or that you're guaranteed to get sick the next time you get on an aircraft. It's just how can we make those chances even lower, right? Right, right. So that's that's good news. Mm-hmm. There are, of course, exceptions. So sometimes if a, if someone is infected with a really contagious disease, whether that's uh, another passenger or a flight attendant, there are opportunities for that disease to pass on to other people, particularly flight attendants. I mean, they're going to be stopping at a lot more people and have 
potentially contact with lots more people, including handing over things like snacks and drinks, yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, sure. There are also differences between a first class passenger being infected and an economy class passenger being infected. Are Another really? study it? that was published in 2009, this one out of UCLA, looked at the spread of influenza A, uh, H1N1, on commercial air flights. And it found that, yes, being in the larger population, larger cabin area and uh, less personal space of an economy class cabin does lead to higher rates of passenger infection. So, uh, you know, if you can afford to fly first class, it might be worthwhile, yeah, you, especially if you're taking very long flights. You also get infected by a, a much more affluent class of bacteria. Oh, right. Right. You know, it's it, it's the kind of bacteria that go really well with uh, with caviar. And they, they do. And they really have those neutrals worked out this year. <laughs> Um, but, uh, other than, other than that, you know, mostly just be aware of your body's defense mechanisms. Uh, you know, if, if your immune system is compromised or if you are in close contact with someone whose immune system is compromised, then talk to your doctor about, uh, you know, hand sanitizers and personal filter masks and any other countermeasures that you might be able to take. If you're healthy, you don't honestly need to worry that much. Uh, you know, get rest before and after you travel. Uh, drink some water. Hydration is usually good. Eat, eat some vegetables, maybe. Uh, tr- try not to touch shared surfaces and then immediately touch your eyeball. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Good advice in general. And and if you guys are sick, c- cover your mouth and nose when you cough and sneeze. Yeah. Were you raised by flying wolves? Yes, but still. <laughs> I mean, you know, I have to conform to society's <laughs> norms. When you fly on a plane, do you ever wear one of those surgical masks just to mess with people? See, now, <laughs> really, the surgical mask is better to be worn by someone who has uh, some form of, of uh, yeah, sickness. That's, Not the, that's the implication. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Cause, He's saying to, yeah. Well, as opposed to there, the thing is, I think the perception is that you wear it to prevent yourself from getting sick, but really you're wearing it to prevent other people from getting what you have. Yeah. Because it's, it's a great filter for catching anything where you cough or sneeze out because you've got a mask on, as opposed to filtering out stuff that's coming in. Uh, that's why doctors wear them during uh, medical procedures so they don't pass any germs on to their patients who are yeah. already in a compromised uh, you know, their, their immune systems may be compromised by whatever that procedure is. You don't want to sneeze into somebody's torso. No, it's generally frowned upon. So, uh, yeah, so what, when, if I were wearing a mask, so you're thinking of if people are aware of that fact, they immediately assume that you have something. You're just assuming that everybody has a false impression that you're just being paranoid. I This is way too much time to spend on this. It's uh, a safe assumption. And mostly what I want to put out there is that everyone should just dress cyber goth whenever they go on an airplane. <laughs> you know, I do kind of wonder about these these sorts of systems. Like if we are able to continually engineer environments that edge closer and closer to being totally pathogen free. Mm-hmm. Would that be good for us? So the idea being that if we were to eliminate pathogens or so close to eliminate them that it's practical to say they no longer exist, uh, would it be good for us? In the, because if we ever were to come into contact with a pathogen, our immune system would go. Brah! Yeah, they I would, mean, I, I don't think we would ever create a world where they don't exist. I'm yeah. just saying, like in our environments, sure. if we're increasingly controlling all the aspects of our of our environments to a very tiny 
level and we're using air filtration to get rid of viruses and bacteria and uh, we're sanitizing all our surfaces with the UV radiation. I mean, what, like, is that going to be bad for our health? I would say in at least certain applications it is absolutely necessary for things like hospitals where oh, of course. the pathogens sure. are, yeah. Uh, in other environments, I would really have to question the validity of the methodology because not not whether or not it was effective, but whether or not it was warranted, mm-hmm. right? Like what is the risk of contagion? What sort of diseases are we talking about? What uh, What's the population like in that particular environment? Uh, yeah, you know, if zombie outbreaks do happen, then yeah, wipe down those surfaces right. real good, guys. And cover your mouth. Cover your mouth when you <laughs> zombie cough. cough. Yeah, exactly. Zombies. Oh. Um, oh. But, can't, can't even get a good brains out because of the coughing. It's really right. It's right. Uh, but but yeah, I don't know. I'm I I am kind of along the the belief system of like occasionally you should eat some dirt and lick some surfaces, uh, just just to just to you know refresh your immune system, get it working good, all that yeah. stuff. I mean not 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 really, but I, I I try really hard to not worry too much about this kind of stuff, especially with all the research that we've done about antimicrobial mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. and and building superbugs and. You know, so so for hospitals, yeah, for for yeah. situations in which people could be genuinely harmed by stuff, all the clean, all the cleanliness, do it, do yeah. it. But I think I think in certain environments where you know you have the risk of of diseases spreading quickly and potentially affecting a lot of people outside of that initial transmission area, then we need to think about it. So things like public transportation or aircraft or schools. Where you've got, uh, you know, fairly large populations all in, in a, an enclosed space. Outside of that, I would say, you know, let's not worry about it too much unless you're talking about a really serious outbreak, in which case, obviously, you have to start reconsidering your options. Uh, for day to day, I would say I would never have a house that would have all this technology built into it. I don't think that that would be warranted. I think it would be an unnecessary expense. I think ultimately I would be get, doing myself more harm than good. And I would recommend people, you know, be aware of, of this kind of stuff, but don't don't get obsessed with it, right? Don't let that like dictate your decisions. Um, it's that's going to end up causing you more grief than what it's worth. Uh, you know, a, a couple of days being sick because you didn't remember to uh, wash your hands before opening up the uh, the you know the the seat back or whatever on a plane is not that big a deal. Uh, so I was glad that we got to look at this because it is kind of interesting to look at the engineering challenges. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just thought of a joke I never made this whole time. What's oh, that? Yeah. Well, it would be something about uh, if Howard Hughes had continued manufacturing airplanes, surely they would have to have like the maximum disease filtration. They would systems. have the isolation booths right. and, and a little a little uh, bowl for you to collect your various finger and toenails. <laughs> um, so that you could you know, have them separated by finger and everything and, and keep keep track of them. It would be an interesting world. Uh, however, we do not live in that world. Sorry, a little Howard Hughes humor. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps up this discussion. As weird as it was. Now, this was fun. I'm glad we had a chance to, to look into this. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of podcasts or, or the video series, maybe there's something you specifically want to hear about, like how is that going to work in the future? 
We're eager to hear from you. Send us an email. Our address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can always drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or Google+. Plus. At Twitter and Google+, Plus, we are FWThinking. Just search FWThinking in the Facebook search bar. We'll pop right up. You can leave us a message. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. There are choices that can change your life. Like the choice to start routine colorectal cancer screening at age 45. It's one of the most common cancers for women and men, and it doesn't always have symptoms. But there's good news. Routine screening can catch colorectal cancer early and even prevent it. And there's even better news. You have screening options. Make the choice to put your health first. Talk to your doctor about your screening options. Or visit cdc.gov slash screenforlife for more information. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.